0: Good morning. morning. How's everybody today? Good, good. good. Well, it looks as though uh, we're ready technically as well. Why don't we have a word of prayer before we start? Our Father in heaven, we thank you so much for giving us a chance to meet today. And we ask that what we discuss will be looked upon through the eyes of heaven. That you'll help us to see more clearly what's going on in this a vast field of medicine and health uh, through the issues of obesity. Thank you for being with us. You said when two or three are gathered in your name that you're here. So we claim that promise now, Lord, in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay, I am going to start with a little question. Ladies and gentlemen, I want you to think with me for a little bit as I ask the following questions. If by chance, yes, if by chance you were to find yourself in a place tomorrow where disease is conquered by medical science, no more disease, If Longevity, for at least, ah, now I'm hearing it myself. (laughs) For at least 300 to 500 years, you will be alive. And it's guaranteed. And if you were to have renewable body parts assured, and if, you can be placed in suspended animation, so that if you happen to have an accident or something like that, and you need something, but it's not readily available, you'll be put to sleep only to be awakened sometime later when the uh, materials are there and everybody is ready to take care of you and bring you back online. If all of these things were to happen, then, then, why would you want to follow a healthy lifestyle. If you can eat, drink, and be merry, and tomorrow you wouldn't die. What then? I would like you to take just one minute and speak to the person next to you and see if you can come up with an answer as to why you would want to live a healthy life. I figured you know the smart people sit up front, right? (laughs) Uh Uh-huh. But they say sometimes the smarter people sit in the back. <laughs> All right. You're talking with your, with your colleagues? Oh, you have the answer already. <laughs> OK. Hi there. OK. Can I have an answer from this side and I'll take one answer from this side? Why? Yes sir. Because God asks you to and you love him. Okay? That's the answer. It's representative of this side, okay? You guys uh, whether you like it or not, that's the answer. All right? And now this side. Yes sir. Maybe the quality of our life would be better regardless of the quantity he was Okay. So he's looking at quality of life. If that will be better, then live a healthy lifestyle to have a higher quality. Okay? That's your answer, group. Uh, okay, so we'll move forward. Now, we're going to talk about obesity, and we're going to find out some things about obesity, and we're going to look at some uh, potential solutions that have been, uh, well, at least exposed by uh, some researchers and uh, personalities. And uh, I would like you to keep in mind the question that you just discussed with your colleague next to you as we're going through. and seeing some of the issues. Now I want to start as well with uh, some disclaimers. The first one is about fitness and fatness. There is a growing body of evidence, no pun intended, that, uh, (laughs) that suggests that how fat you are is not the major issue, but how fit you are is the issue. Right? What they have done is uh, with statistics, they have been able to tease out some of the other uh, factors. And what a large study has shown, over 4,000 people, what it showed was that if you take away all of the other risk factors that we know to be confounders, that really most of the issue regarding fatness is really an issue of fitness. So that if you happen to be fat but fit, you'll do fine, okay? Now this is uh, epidemiological uh, data, it is research, it is uh, statistical manipulation, but this is something, and we're not gonna go into that, okay? The next thing is, we're not gonna discuss today the width of heaven's door, okay? (laughs) Now, by that I mean, heaven's doors are large enough that saved fat people can get in. And they don't have to go in sideways, all right? Okay. We believe that, don't you? Okay, we have one person here who doesn't believe it, uh, William, we can talk afterwards, okay? But why I say it's a disclaimer is because I don't want to deal with that issue here, all right, okay. The third thing is I won't deal with the issue of overeating. Even though I want to remind you that uh, the Bible is clear, not saying that the obese will not inherit the kingdom, but it says that gluttons won't go to heaven. I mean, that's pretty clear. But we're not going to discuss that either during the course of our talk today. Okay? So don't ask me any questions about it later on. (laughs) Okay? All right. So now we go. The tenant of our talk today... Is this apart from Christ a healthy person is just a sinner with longevity that's it we're going to look at the context of obesity and get to this point do you know these men yes. look at what Time magazine said about the guy on the left or the question they asked can this guy make you healthy Now, you know, um, I happen to like beards. And I thought that that was a wild beard. Okay? No pun intended either. Okay? Uh, My wife, on the other hand, would not have me come home looking like that. Okay? (laughs) But the beard notwithstanding, this man is a guru in health today. People listen to what he says, they read his books. Medical people go to his center to learn from him how to help people live long and live well. And the guy on the right, do you know him? Can this man save your heart? Now, that's a, that's a full question if I ever heard one. Save your heart. Now, the man on the right, he has moved away from just physical medicine. And he has gotten into spiritual medicine. And he practices Zen Buddhism. As a matter of fact, in one of his first and perhaps his most famous book, about one third of the book, roughly, dealt with Zen Buddhism in a modern sense, Okay. These men are listened to and followed by many people today. How about these guys? Uh-huh. These people are very influential. And they tell people practical things about what they should do, what they could do, what they can do, what they shouldn't do, what they mustn't do if they want to live long and prosper. The guy on the bottom right has perhaps the largest following on the web of any of the health gurus. And he makes quite a good living off of it, Okay, That's Mercola. And then, of course, you can't pass by any newsstand or any uh, bookstore, and you won't see all of these kinds of magazines and journals. And you know what they do? They tell people how to live, how to live a healthy life, how to live a long life. Now, they're selling other things too, I want you to notice. If you look on the covers, you'll see different telltale signs as to what it is that they're selling. There were some that were much more explicit that I didn't want to, uh, to put up in an audience. They're selling other things too. And then, of course, what is considered one of the greatest bestsellers, greatest, The Dr. Atkins' New Diet Revolution. This book has sold more copies than perhaps any other health book in the world. It is still being sold, and it's still being sold out. Well, the reality is we have had a plethora of health books and health magazines over the last 30 years. All kinds of things. We get voices from everywhere telling us how we should live and what is the best thing that we can do if we wanted to live a long, healthy, happy, fulfilling life for nine ninety-five, <laughs> And then we have these kinds of books. You've seen some of them. My favorite, in quotes, is the one on the top left. I still can't imagine what Adam and Eve did to make sure they had the right blood type (laughs) for what they were going to eat. I still can't figure that one out. But you see, part of the backdrop of many of these kinds of books is evolution. You see? So behind. This is the idea that, you know, we came from uh, you know, monkeys, and, and they came from other uh, creatures, and fi- you know some slime somewhere uh, we came out of it. And therefore, uh, we can manipulate things to give evolution a hand so that we can live long, we can live uh, prosperous, and we can be altruistic with our genes to be able to pass them on to somebody else. Okay, these are different kinds of things that are out there for us to, uh, to imbibe as we may choose. But I tell you, it could be this simple. If you know which blood type you have, does everybody here know your blood type? Okay, then this is a simple diagram that will tell you what kinds of things you will thrive on, right, by your blood type. This is what that book. And then the books that, fell, that, that, uh, that followed, there were books on cancer and heart disease and all kinds of things for your blood type, OK? But one of the reasons why this is such a problem and we have such a growth in this kind of literature and these kinds of... Uh, of you know, gurus and influences. It's because there is a real problem that is occurring. And this diagram, this, this, this cartoon, kind of gives you a little bit of it. See, he is free to be himself, isn't that right? That's what's on his shirt. But he doesn't realize that he's a slave to the things that he's doing. He doesn't realize that, OK? So here's what's going on in the country right now. If you were to look at the statistics, obesity in America is at an all-time high. And if you were to look at the progression of things, the epicenter is down here in the South. It seems as though uh, many things start in the South. It's kind of like how some um, you know, good movements start, some not so good movements start in the South. And it has gone all through the country, right? But you know what? It's not like a virus. It's just the way people live. We think, right? It's just the way people live. And uh, it was just a matter of time before everybody would be uh, involved. And in the United States, this is what we're looking at. Uh, if you have a chance, you can go on the CDC website, and you can look at the development of uh, the progression of this over many years. And it's a very fascinating way to, to look at all the slides in sequence, as you see state by state becoming involved with uh, greater and greater girth. Okay. But it's not just a problem in the United States. It's a worldwide problem. This is what it looks like if you were to look at uh, major countries in the world. You know, 31% obese in the United States, 24% in Mexico, 23% in the UK. And you know, people at the top kind of vie Uh, for position, depending upon who's doing the uh, data collection and what numbers they're using for the statistics. But you know, what disturbed me a lot, see, I was born in Trinidad, and uh, recently I went down to Trinidad to uh, give some conferences relating to diabetes. And while I was there, a report came out. And this is the report. You're not going to be able to see much of it. But this report was showing uh, which countries had uh, the average body mass index, which is uh, a measure of, of fatness, it's not an exact measure, but it's a measure of fatness, uh, between 25 and 26.9. And at the top of the list, the bottom for us to look at, but the top of the list was actually Kuwait. The United States got silver. Number two. And Trinidad and Tobago got the bronze, a little country in the southern part of the Caribbean. I'm told that since that time, recalculating the, uh, the, the data, Mexico has joined the, uh, the fray, and Mexico has moved up to second place. So I think this is going to be a tight run, OK? <laughs> we'll see who will win out, right? But then there's a the problem of what's happening with children. That was adults, now with children. The picture is a little bit different when we look at children, because who, which countries, have the kids that are the fattest. And this is uh, one that was, um, was collected, looking at rankings of, uh, of obesity in children. And you'll see that Albania right, is the one in this survey that was leading the list. Ukraine was second. Look at these, okay? And compare them with Chile and the United States, okay? The percent of the population under five who were considered obese. Under five. Under five and obese, okay? You see, there is a problem as well. For the, those who are taking care of kids, that is, parents, to be able to detect accurately whether children are obese or overweight or not. And this is a study that came out, of, uh, came out of Canada, looking at the parents' perception in blue, the parents' perception of what was going on with the child, and the measured BMI of those children. In other words, we're looking at what we will consider perception versus reality. And you'll see that for normal weight, they were pretty close. But when it came to obese, the parents were abysmally poor at being able to detect obesity. They would misclassify them as something else. Okay? Now, some of this has to do with culture. How many of you like to see a bouncing baby boy? You see? We see a bouncing, it it even sounds nice, you know, a bouncing baby boy. I don't think we like to see the child really bounce, but, you know, a bouncing baby boy sounds really good. Uh, So we have filters in our eyes because we look at the bouncing baby boy and we say, this is healthy, right? As a matter of fact, if you were to see a skinny baby boy, you would wonder if the child is getting enough to eat. Okay? You'd say, Mom, you're not doing something right here. Right? That child is too skinny. And this is how our eyes have been programmed. Okay? The, similarly, it happens as we grow up. But it's less of an issue because as people grow up, we know that they make choices and they do different things. But still, Grandma might be saying, oh, that boy, he's too skinny. Okay? Anybody here knows what I'm talking about? OK. Good. So the way that parents would, would recognize this, they have to have more acute vision. And that means that we have to have more acute vision. Parents, grandparents, even uh, siblings, we need to have more acute vision. Is that so that we can uh, re- really trounce on, on, uh, on the overweight kids and, and whatnot? Is that what, what do we have to do with that, once we have detected it? That we trounce on them and make sure they lose some weight? No. But you know what? If we are noticing a trend, then we ought to be able to do some things right, to assist the child to not go in that direction. Or maybe there's a medical condition that's going on that we then might be able to address, OK? Well, there's some complications of childhood obesity that, uh, and obesity in general that we shouldn't take very lightly. For instance, uh, children who are obese, uh, will end up with psychosocial problems, poor self-esteem, in any way that you characterize poor self-esteem, I'm not going to get into those details, depression, eating disorders, they may end up with a problem, a neurologic problem called pseudotumor cerebri, pulmonary problems, sleep apnea, asthma, exercise intolerance, and this will lead later on to heart disease itself, Okay, high blood pressure itself. Gastrointestinal problems like gallstones, and steatohepatitis, which is uh, a kind of non-alcoholic liver disease that will progress to death. Okay? One third of people with uh, uh, steatohepatitis will end up dying because of this. They'll end up with cirrhosis of the liver. They have an increased incidence of glomerulosclerosis, typically related to the high blood pressure that they would uh, develop. They have musculoskeletal problems okay, of, of various sorts. They have endocrine problems. The, what leads the list is, of course, type 2 diabetes. Type 2 diabetes. You know, we used to, uh, we used to call this type 2 diabetes, um, you know, adult onset diabetes. It's no longer uh, called that for obvious reasons, because we see it in children. And more and more we see it in children of younger and younger age, because younger and younger age children have this problem, this metabolic problem, with uh, insulin resistance, and they develop either pre-diabetes or full-blown diabetes uh, long before we'd even think that they should. Okay, Uh, Precocious puberty, that is uh, before their time, they are developing into... Uh, adolescence and adulthood, polycystic ovary syndrome in girls. Polycystic ovary syndrome is a significant cause of infertility in women, okay? Uh, It can also cause hirsutism. It's a nice, uh, nice uh, big word. It means that the girl grows a beard and a mustache and things like that. She has abnormal hair growth. And hypogonadism in boys, that is that their uh, their gonads don't develop uh, normally, okay? And then, of course, the biggie, what will more than likely be the cause of the demise of these children as they grow up, which is cardiovascular disease. And dyslipidemia, that's a nice big word for uh, the cholesterol is high and the triglycerides are high and the, the, the blood fats are all messed up. Okay? High blood pressure, coagulopathy, they have an increased risk of blood clotting, which means uh, increased risk of peripheral vascular disease, increased risk of stroke, increased risk of heart attacks. Okay. Chronic inflammation, which is an underlying problem. Uh, The adipose tissue is actually like uh, a gland in the body, and therefore it feeds this chronic inflammation. And of course, endothelial dysfunction. Endothelial dysfunction means it's the lining of of the blood vessels that are actually not working correctly. And this is an underlying problem in people who have heart disease, coronary artery disease. So this is, this is bad, bad stuff. These are the things that a child with obesity is actually looking towards in their future. Do you think this is a, a, a glowing future for the child? No. Now, what is not mentioned on, the, on, uh, on this is what's happening to the child's mentation. Uh, Dr. DeRose yesterday talked about the issue of having a brain that works, and mental health that permits us to be able to have better spiritual health, OK? This is going on with these kids at a young age. Now, there are lots of different theories as to why and how children with, uh, with obesity develop the obesity and the consequences, the things that surround that phenomenon, that the child actually turns out to be obese. The weight status is in the center, and then right around it are the characteristics and risk factors uh, for the child himself or herself. Gender, the age, sedentary behavior, physical activity, right, what they eat and what they don't eat. See, these are all things that we all can, uh, can relate to. These are the immediate things that will affect the child's weight. Familial susceptibility to weight gain. You know, we say that uh, that your weight kind of runs in your family. Uh, so often, uh, I meet people, and I know, for, I know, in my own family, okay, that there there's some situations where you know that's how it goes. I'll tell you, if uh, if I were less careful, I would be a huge guy, not just a big guy, right? Uh, I look at all of my sisters. Okay. And they all have a tendency to be overweight or obese. Okay. My mom, when she was young, was skinny. My dad was skinny. But as they got older, they gained weight. Okay. Now, how much of this is genetic and how much of it is cultural? Hmm. But you know, I used to have patients tell me, Doctor, I have tried everything to lose weight, And I just can't seem to get it off. And they would say things like, "You know, other people can eat this and that and that, and I just try a little bit, and and I blow up." Okay. Well, I tell you, I have actually experienced something similar myself. That I just look at the food. (laughs) You know what I'm talking about? Anybody here knows what I'm talking about? I just look at it. It seems as though it comes through the air in the, in the aroma of the food, right? And I start gaining weight. So we have to be, we have to be sensitive that there are some people that have this uh, predisposition. It means that we should be more careful. Does that, does that make sense to you? It means that we should be more careful. So the familial susceptibility may not be familial genetic, even though it could be. It might be familial cultural, familial in the sense of you know we pass on a lot more things than genes. Uh, than For instance, if you had a rich uncle, you'd like him to pass something else on to you, right? OK? So we pass on our habits. If mom and dad uh, really love the outdoors and they exercise a lot, guess what will happen to the kids? They will do the same, by and large. right? If mom and dad are home buddies, home buddies you know, they uh, sit in front of the television, guess what the kids will do? More than likely, they will do the same. and they'll have... So this is something that is not genetic. But it's passed on from one generation to the other, and this is part of what we see here. Uh, then, of course, we have the uh, parenting styles and the family characteristics. Uh, we have we have rings of things around there. How much TV they watch, etc. You know, if you look at the statistics, there's a direct correlation between the number of hours spent watching television and uh, body mass index in children. But you know. One of the things that this diagram does not have, if you look very carefully, this was developed by some very astute researchers, but nowhere in this diagram do I see the spiritual dimension of the child. Nowhere. Now, why do you think that would be? We know that we have an anthropo- anthropological model of the human being that includes the spiritual aspect. We know this. But it seems as though, time after time, people forget or maybe decide not to include this in the evaluation of the whole person. Now, this is something that Seventh-day Adventists bring to the table. This is part of the health message, how we see the human being. And this can become very quickly eroded when we see the literature telling us things that exclude this from the equation. And over and over and over again, we are bombarded with these Uh, with these messages that, you know, the spiritual aspect, the belief of an individual may have nothing to do, if you were to follow these things, have nothing to do with what happens to the health of the individual. This is just not true, okay? There are some countries in Europe which uh, for many years have been very secular in this. They are looking at some of the research that's coming out and they're thinking, you know what, maybe we ought to legislate spirituality. Okay? How you like that? Yeah. Legislated. There are some people in the United States who would like to legislate spirituality and have every doctor, regardless of what that doctor's creed might be, pray with patients. Do you know about this? Amen. Hmm? Yeah. So, we, we have to... We have to, to, to Really relate to this with with wisdom, okay? Amen. Because what may seem like a good thing on the outset, you know, uh, the quality of the prayer. You know what I mean? <laughs> the prayer of what kind of man avails much, <laughs> right? So, do I really want, uh, you know, an atheist to offer a perfunctory prayer for me as I go into surgery or something like this? Do I really want that? Anyway. Things to think about. You thought you were here and you were just going to listen, right? <laughs> OK, so here we have some solutions. One solution is to use the Atkins approach. You know, you have all these uh, kids who are gaining excess weight. What we need to do is to put all of these kids on a diet that they will really like and will really stick to. We put them on the Atkins diet. What do you think about that? Doesn't sound too good? I mean. They will have a high protein. You know, kids need protein. Isn't that what we hear? Kids need a lot of protein right, for their growth. And you know what, to some extent, that is true. But the amount of protein that, we, that we're talking about oftentimes is exaggerated. You know, the first studies looking at protein for um, making some uh, semblance of a requirement for people, who were actually studied to decide on this protein? They were railroad workers. Okay. Men who were logging, uh, you know, taking these big logs and putting them down and working hard all day, right? That's who, who were looked at. And uh, any railroad workers here? Uh, I've been working on the railroad. Now. And no, nobody. Okay. So then uh, those standards probably don't apply to you. So the amount of protein that they may need for all the wear and tear on their bodies may not be the amount that we need For the little wear and tear that we may have on our bodies, okay? The Atkins diet is also a high fat diet because it's by, by design a low carbohydrate diet, low carb diet. So you have high protein and high fat. We give that to the kids, and they should all lose weight and be very happy. What do you think? Any takers? No. Okay. So, Atkins, what are we gonna do? with you. Well, here is something that you may not know about. And I say, not so fast, because I know you wouldn't go after Atkins. But I want to mention meat consumption in the Epic Panacea study. This is a study of uh, 4,000 men and women in Europe. Sorry, 400,000. Sorry. 400,000. Men and women aged 25 to 70, recruited between 1992 and 2000 in 10 European countries. You think that's a large study? Yeah, that's 400,000 people, right? What they found is that uh, after doing their statistical evaluation, that an increase in 240 grams per day of meat in the diet was associated with a two kilogram increase in weight after five years. So it was about five pounds or one pound per year. Now, you need to understand they controlled for calories. In other words, they were looking at people who had isocaloric diets. Same amount of calories eating meat, same amount of calories, but not eating meat. And they found that those who ate meat had an increase in weight. Interesting. It seems as though a calorie is not a calorie is not a calorie. But then we had some intuitive feeling for that before. Because you probably realize that there are some things that you can eat, and the same amount of that, or the same amount of another thing, and some make you feel a little bit fuller than others. Some actually, if you were to persist in it, you'd probably gain more weight, because this is historically what people talk about. But this one showed it. So now, another study, this was published in the New England Journal of Medicine in 2009, if I'm not mistaken. Yes, 2009. What they looked at, now this, is, this was a unique uh, study by Dr. Sachs uh, in, uh, in Boston. What they did was they recruited well-educated, motivated people, professors and graduate students and uh, students at Harvard, okay, to be involved in this study. You might wonder then if it will be applicable to the rest of the society, but nonetheless, this was what they did. They found these individuals and they randomized them to four different kinds of diets. They modified in the diet the amount of protein, (laughs) carbohydrates, and fat. It isn't necessary to go through all of the issues. What is important to show is that these individuals had not just medical consultations on an ongoing basis. They had dietitians and fitness trainers and, uh, and coaches working with them. They had uh, group conferences. They had individual conferences. And they, they kept on them, as they say proverbially, like white on rice, okay, to see what would happen. Well, in the first uh, six months to a year, everybody did very well. Regardless of the diet that they were on, they all lost weight. That's it here. But then, as the months went on, by two years, they all drifted up to about half of the weight that they had initially lost, they gained back. Okay? This is an interesting thing. They looked also at what happened with their, wa- with their waist, and they found a similar effect, even though it was not as dramatic. People typically... Uh, on the dietary program that they had, all of them with the same uh, um, calories, caloric uh, uh, intake, but all of them uh, lost, on average, about three inches of, of, uh, of waistline, and they gained back about one inch. Okay. So this is an interesting thing. Their conclusion was, it doesn't matter what the diet looks like. Did you hear what I just said? They concluded it didn't matter what the diet looks like. It didn't matter the intensive uh, approach that they used to helping people follow through. People just gained the weight back over time. Is that very exciting to you? No. They, They had no explanation for why. They just said, this is what the statistics are showing. Well, I will say this. I would accept their conclusion because they, too, had programs that were relying on human power. Their program did not include in the follow up nor in the induction of these individuals any consideration for the power that can come from the Almighty God to help us to do what we cannot do for ourselves. Now, we have uh, enough evidence looking at people who have come through our lifestyle centers over the years who have made changes, not because we just had good uh, medical information and good motivational coaches. And doctors who were astute at diagnosing and treating know many of the successes have been because these people encountered, in a transforming way, they encountered the physician of physicians. Once that happens, that's a game changer, we call it. Now, I'm going to say something here that uh, I hope isn't taken the wrong way. But Seventh-day Adventists have done an abysmal job of being able to document this. We don't have this data documented. And we have not published this kind of information. I wonder, I wonder, if over the last 150 years, we had collected the data on all of the individuals who had gone through our lifestyle centers over the years, and we were to publish what has gone on, do you think we would be in the same position that we're in today? I would think not. I am not a prophet, so I can't tell you what would have happened. But it seems to me what would have happened would be quite different from what we have today. So when do you think we should start collecting some of this data? Now, okay? And this is what all of the centers uh, will be doing from here on out. Because uh, in the scientific world, data talks. That's what it is. You go and you tell somebody, let's do so and so and so, and they say, well, that sounds pretty good, but where's the data? And today the buzzword is evidence based medicine. Evidence based medicine. Where is your evidence? Okay? And we, unfortunately, have not been careful in documenting and keeping the evidence, okay? Uh, last word about that. I didn't plan to say this, but I'm going to say it anyway. You know, faith is based on evidence. Are you, are you familiar with that concept? Yes. Blind faith doesn't sound, uh, isn't, isn't the reality. Faith is based on the evidence of what God has already done. And we trust him with that And therefore, we don't have to see exactly what he's going to do in the future. If he says that's what he will do, that's because he is faithful to do it. And if we have the eyes of faith, we will trust him completely with that. Okay? So faith, even faith, is based on evidence. So in 2010, another study was published in... I need to know how I'm doing on time. Another study was published in the New England Journal of Medicine, this time looking at diets with high or low protein content and also looking at high or low glycemic index for weight loss maintenance. So what they were trying to see is, could they do something, ma'am? Could they do something that will make a difference in whether people will, will retain or sustain their weight loss. And you know what? They found some things. They said, yes, overweight adults who had lost weight on a low calorie diet, okay, were randomly assigned to maintenance that and follow for 26 weeks. That's how long? That's six months, that's half a year. Diets with a higher protein content, a lower glycemic index, or both, appear to improve the diet completion rate and the weight loss maintenance. But guess what? This was only six months. Six months. But it does give an an inkling. Maybe if you increase by a little bit the the protein from a low calorie diet. And perhaps uh, if you would make sure that you're using things with a lower glycemic index, that is the things that don't have a tendency to cause the blood sugar to rush uh, right up, then Maybe people will tolerate it better and stick on it longer, at least for six months, Okay, And they can consolidate the weight loss that they had. But then, that isn't enough. There are correlations between weight gain in the United States and around the world related to the consumption of different kinds of things. And I'm going to highlight just one of them. This is sweetness and sugar. Here we see, between 1970, in the darker blue, and 2008, in the lighter blue, what is happening with the consumption of two major things. One is sugar that either came from, or either comes from uh, sugarcane or beets, and the other Is high fructose corn syrup. Now, back in 1970, most of the sugar, most of the consumption was of sugar, and very little was from high fructose corn syrup. Plus, there were other things, you know, like honey and uh, other kinds of uh, sweet syrups and things like that. But the majority came from sugar, very little from high fructose corn syrup. But in 2008, by comparison, The sugar consumption had gone down, but the high fructose corn syrup consumption had gone up. Leading to a total daily consumption of sweeteners higher in 2008 than in 1970. Now there's another way to look at this data, at these data. If you look now uh, from the 70s going on to 2010, this line here is the line for added sugar in the diet. Do you notice the tendency of this line? Is that going up, down, or stable? It's going up. Okay. At the end here, it's coming down a little bit, and you know why it's coming down because people are looking at it, right? When you start looking at things and you start making some changes, you would see some changes in uh, in the results. Okay. This is refined cane and beet sugar. Notice the. The, uh, the quantity went down. Why? Because sugar back in the 90s got a bad name. You guys remember that some of you? The, sugar got a bad name, bad name. No more sugar. So what uh, the industry did was they replaced the sugar with something else and at first they said no this is not sugar. Right? This is not sugar. This is high fructose corn syrup. In other words, it's sugar that doesn't come from, uh, from, from cane or beets, but sugar that comes from corn. Okay. Now, does that sound normal to you? So we had sugar that's coming from corn, and they said, don't worry, this is not sugar. Sugar is bad, this is not sugar. I have lived long enough to see what happened. I was at the public uh, uh, American... Um, public health meetings uh, some years ago, and there we had people from the industry of, uh, of the fructose corn syrup, and they were giving out DVDs, free of charge, right? Giving out these DVDs. Now they're saying, don't worry, high fructose corn syrup is just sugar. <laughs> Why? Because people got on the high fructose corn syrup bandwagon saying it was bad. You get the idea? So now they say, it's just sugar. Come on, it's just sugar. Well, it's either it is or it isn't. Well, the reality is it is sweet like sugar. And for all intents and purposes, it is sugar, except it's not. It's something else. It's something that was, uh, was put together to fool people and to fool our bodies. Okay. And this is high fructose corn syrup. And what we can see is that the amount of corn-based sweeteners, total corn-based sweeteners, has increased. The high fructose corn syrup amount has increased. It's taken a little drop because what? Because the public is now saying, we want to start reducing this. This is a problem here. Okay. But the total amount of sugar, the total amount of sweets that we eat, is still pretty high, still pretty high. Now, here's some counsel from 1870. Read this carefully. It says, and from the light given me, sugar, when largely used, is more injurious than, what's that last last word? Meat. Meat. Amen. Okay. Amen. More injurious than meat sugar when largely used. Now, how many really heeded that counsel? Okay. Praise the Lord. (laughs) There are some who heeded the counsel. But there were others who were fixated on the meat. Now, don't get me wrong. It's a good thing to fixate on sometimes, right? But here is a statement that puts meat in a light that says, meat is not good for you, that's what she says, but then there's something that's worse. So a solution, you might say, get rid of the sugar, but keep the sweet. Let's use non-nutritive sweeteners instead, OK? Now. I'm not going to get into the aspartame and the saccharin and the cyclamates issue. I just want to show you one little study that just got uh, published a few months ago, in July actually. The evidence suggests that when used judiciously, this is what the, uh, the guidelines said, when used judiciously, non-nutritive sweeteners could facilitate reductions in added sugar intake thereby resulting in decreased total energy and weight loss or weight control and promoting beneficial effects on related metabolic parameters. This is a combined statement by the American Heart Association, American Diabetes Association, saying that the evidence to date suggests that if you were to use these things judiciously you might be able to derive some benefits from them. However, these potential benefits will not be fully realized if there is a compensatory increase in energy intake from other sources. In other words, you can reduce your sugar intake by replacing it with these things. But if you don't take care of the other things that you're doing, you're going to cancel out the potential benefits. Okay? Now, this is, I would call this a fair and balanced statement. Uh, based on the information that they had. But now look at this. One of the major uh, artificial sweetness is the new kid on the block that was touted, I remember, when I was at the American Diabetes Association meeting just before this was released to the public. We all had a chance to taste it and whatnot, and, and all of the research that they had done, they said, you know, this stuff is the next best thing to slice bread. I mean, it is... It is sweet like sugar, it's made from sugar, it has no calories, right? No side effects, no side effects. Read my lips, no side effects, all right? Okay, as a matter of fact, I remember at that meeting, asking the chemist, who was the lead chemist in the development of this, I asked him, so tell me exactly what happens when you eat this, okay? And he said, the bacteria in our gut do not metabolize this. And we cannot metabolize it. We can't absorb it. Therefore, it's inert. You put it in your mouth. It gives you the sweet taste. But you have nothing, no mechanism for being able to to take care of it. So you pass it out happily. And you smile when you go to the bathroom. He didn't say that, but I said it. Okay. Okay. So then I asked him a question. I said, so tell me. When you excrete it, if none of the bacteria can get rid of it, what happens when it gets out in the ecosystem? And you know, he couldn't answer me. He didn't know. In other words, he was saying, I don't know if any of the bacteria that are out there we will be able to take care of this thing and get rid of it. Now, that's pretty scary. This was about a month or so before it was released. He took my card, and he called me two weeks later, and he said, doctor, you gave me a scare. But it is biodegradable. I believe him. It's fine. They checked it out. It's biodegradable. But guess what was found? Recently, April 30th it was published. People who drank sucralose, which is the active ingredient in Splenda, when they took it and compared their drinking of this thing, which supposed to have how many calories Splenda has? Zero calories. They took this thing and they compared what happened with their blood sugar and their insulin levels with when they were drinking plain, pure water, okay? Here's what they found. They had a higher blood sugar, sugar peak. Now, can you imagine that? They have a spike in their blood sugar taking in something that has no calories and it's inert. Do you think it's inert? No. no. Okay. Next, they had a 20% higher insulin level. So the body is responding to this thing as if it were Sugar, even though, according to them, it doesn't get absorbed. Now, I don't know the mechanism for that. But this this should alert us. We may think something is inert. We may think we're fooling the body. But our physiology, we're learning physiology. We're not the masters of physiology. So if you want to have guarantee that you're getting zero calories with no effect on your blood sugar and no effect on your insulin levels, what is the beverage of choice? Water. Now, you are talking to somebody, I'm talking to you, and I love fruit juices, Okay. But I can't not pay attention to counsel, right? I should. And therefore, I have to pay attention. Would I go out and use splendor, or should I be using uh, all of the, uh, the answer is, you know, water just seems like it uh, comes out shining every time. Now, what I don't have on this, uh, on this presentation was even an attack against water. Can you believe that? About a year and a half ago, there was a long article written in the British Medical <coughs> Journal about the evils of water and the perpetration of, uh, of uninformed individuals like ourselves, OK, telling people that they have to drink all this water, OK? And this was, it was a well-written uh, article in the British Medical Journal. It received a record number of, uh, of letters to the editor over that. OK? Uh, but even something like water <laughs> uh, would get bad press from time to time. In this case, uh, pure water being considered by the British Medical Journal as a problem. Yes? No, well, it is included in that group, but uh, the same study has not been done with stevia. So I can't tell you what will happen with stevia. OK? Now, what about these insulin levels and things like that? Well, this, uh, this slide I put in last night okay, to follow up on what Dr. DeRose was talking about. Now, he didn't have this slide because this study came out yesterday, okay. All right. This slide is showing what happens with people who have diabetes and their blood sugar goes up. If it's 160 or higher, they end up with an increased risk of, you see that word there? Dementia. Dementia, OK? So what he was saying yesterday is corroborated, right, by, Uh, research that he did not see. Do you know why it was corroborated that way? Because we have counsel that tells us how to interpret the literature. Because we have inside information. And we need to pay attention to that inside information. Okay. But we have other people who are coming and telling us what that information should be. So we might say, change your lifestyle. And there are many people who are talking about changing your lifestyle. Do you know this man? Now, I know him personally. He's a very nice man. okay. And he says, read my lips, no fat. That's what he says. And this is his son. You know, real men eat plants. You know, and we'd say, hey, all right, that's really good. For those of us who are uh, plant-based eaters, we say, yes, he, is, he could be our poster child, right? I mean, doesn't he look really good, huh? He's a fireman, a noble profession, right? And he's trim, and fit, and muscular, and he's a total vegetarian, OK? But they espouse a no-fat eating plan. Now, listen. Maybe if he said no added fat or no added oils, but no fat. Now, how do you get no fat anyway? And then he says, uh, you know, not not even nuts, and avocados, and not not those things either. Okay. Um. So what about the counselor we have that says fruits, grains, vegetables, the goods, nuts, and seeds, they, they have fats, okay? Well, I mean, the truth be told, even the fruits and vegetables have fat too. It's a little bit, right? But no added, nothing, no nuts, no seeds, no avocados, no olives, no coconuts, omega-3, no, forget about these things, he says, right? You want to reverse heart disease, this is how you do it, he says. This is how you do it. He is an expert, and he has data that will back him up, because he will show you. As a matter of fact, he gave me a copy of his slides. I have copies of his slides, and I believe them. Regression of coronary artery disease, Okay, You have a stenosis there. You go on his diet, and the thing opens, right? So now, what do you do? Do you go no fat? no cholesterol, uh, sorry, no fat, uh, no nuts, no seeds, no no nothing, on the one hand, or you go on something else. You see, I'm brought back to the idea that apart from Christ, a healthy person is just a sinner with longevity. I'm brought back to that. As I see some of the other research, here's one looking at Uh, changes in weight with uh, physical fitness, weight circumference, glycated hemoglobin, all of these things, 10-year follow-up. And you know what they concluded after all of this? They said an intensive lifestyle intervention focusing on weight loss did not reduce the rate of cardiovascular events in overweight or obese adults. These people had diabetes. 10 years, no change. Wow. Maybe intensive lifestyle doesn't work. But here we have the evidence from Caldwell-Esselstyn. And the study from Dean Ornish back in 1991, the Lifestyle Heart Trial, all of which said doing lifestyle. And we have a long history of almost 150 years of people doing this thing. Do we have any evidence that what we've been doing is worthwhile or or it's helpful? I tell you what. We didn't collect the data, but somebody else did. Are you guys familiar with the blue zones? Yeah. Yes. Okay. Yeah. Do you know it was interesting that there was only one community in the United States that made it in the top five? Amen. One community. Orlando? No. <laughs> Loma Linda, California. Of all places, Loma Linda, California. That smog-infested place that I used to call home. (laughs) Loma Linda, California. Well, why is it that people in Loma Linda, California, made it to the blue zone? You know, if you had compared them with the folks in Okinawa, who also made it to the top three, you would find that the people in Okinawa had a genetic advantage. They had a long history of, of a cultural a set of activities that promote health, I tell you, be an Okinawan. Things will work out really well. Exactly, all right? So here we have these individuals that they're living in in a closed community, and they're doing very well in Okinawa, right? And then we go to Sardinia. And in Sardinia, another closed community, they don't have a word for vegetarian. They party all the time. They drink alcohol. But guess what? They have a genetic mutation that instead of weakening their uh, survival, actually strengthens them. This is a weird thing. So you might say, maybe I could just go to Sardinia. No, no, no. You have to be a member of their family. And everybody in Sardinia, their family, they have inbred Everybody is somebody's uncle, father, cousin, whatever. They intermarry, okay? Close community. But then, when they got to Loma Linda, open community, hodgepodge of people with parents and grandparents who are sick. No genetic advantage. But the community has some things going for it. They live in a particular way. Not everybody perfectly, you know that, right? And they have a spiritual connection. That is part of who they are. And guess what, if I ask you today, which of those three communities do you most closely resemble? Okinawans, Sardinians, or Lomalindans? Can you imagine if everybody in Loma Linda really were to live according to the counsels that we have? Can you imagine what would have happened? And then we have some other voices. This gentleman is saying, you don't have to do it all. This is a famous doctor that's being followed, and uh, he has things on youtube and he's interviewed all over the world this guy he says 70 percent right 30 percent wrong we're still okay he says we're only human <sighs> for him food from microwaves ovens this is a major problem you know the sugar the meat and whatnot that you, you can get past with it. but the microwave oven he says this is the thing It may be a major cause of type 2 diabetes. That's his view. I told you, we'd be talking about some novel and not so novel approaches to obesity. He says we should listen to our instincts. We'll never go wrong if we listen to our instinct. As a matter of fact, he calls his system instinct-based medicine. Instinct-based medicine. Instinct is always right, he says. It's God talking to us. Do you guys want to trust your instincts today? And then we have Dr. Joel Wallach. He says, our problem is that we don't get enough salt. As a matter of fact, he believes that we should put many of the physicians and health practitioners and lifestyle counselors who tell people to cut back on their salt, we should put them in jail. Because they're restricting what the body really needs. He says salt restriction leads to gastroesophageal reflux, iron deficiency, gluten intolerance, and these things work together and somehow affects all of our metabolism and may be influencing what's going on with our health not the obesity necessarily. Now he seems like a very reasonable fellow, uh, in other respects. And then there's this gentleman. He is, uh, uh, he is a counselor to the stars and to the uh, important people out in California. There, right? He has people who go all, fly across the country to see him, and he. He believes in a 35% protein diet, okay, to start off with. 35% protein, which is a relatively high amount of protein. He says at the beginning, whenever you're starting a a change, you need to count calories. And he says because most people can't estimate what the calories look like, so they need to count it. You know, that sounds reasonable. And then he says what our bodies really need is continuous feeding, though. Continuous feeding. He says we should feed all day, right? And since we probably won't like to feed all day, then we should at least do it five or six times a day, right? And that the three times a day or two times a day, oh, this, is, this is just, it was just out of convenience. It's a, it's a, it's a problem that uh, we developed as a society. And then Dr. Oz says, you know, one of the solutions that we might have for being able to reduce our calories during the day is to have some capsation, red pepper, in our breakfast. Okay. So if you're eating cereal, you can put a little bit of pepper in it. I get, no, he didn't say that. He didn't say that. But he says, I, I tell you, we have, we have different ways of looking at things. And we have to ask ourselves the questions. Who will we listen to? Our time is almost out. And I'm going to go fast and say, this is liposuction. Do you think this is the solution? That will get rid of it in a hurry. Okay. And this one is showing you all of the benefits of gastric bypass surgery. And I'm not going to go through everything, but just about every one of the complications that we talked about before, this is going to show you how to take care of them with gastric bypass surgery. You think that's the way to go? You can go from the left to the right, from the uh, striped blouse to the, in just a matter of a few weeks. Doesn't that sound good? And then we see these billboards. Childhood obesity, don't take it lightly, and just below it, my kind of shopping spree. But you know, research is not all bad. Research in the New England Journal of Medicine, back in 2011, showed that weight loss, exercise, or both, and physical function in obese older people, both of them were helpful. I'm not going to go through that study. And people were asked if... This is a recent study, recent survey by the Pew, uh, survey people, the Pew Research Center. They asked, would you want medical treatments to extend your life by decades? 38% of people said yes, 56% said no. And then they asked about people, would most people want medical treatments to extend their life by decades? They said that 68% will say yes, and only 20% would say no. Why would people think that others will want to extend their life, but they don't want to? Why do you think? I I was hearing something back there. They think that others are happier than they are, yes. You see, I have found, not from a Pew Research Center study, but just in talking to patients over the years, most people aren't really worried too much about their death. They're worried more about suffering. They don't want to suffer, right? And therefore, they'd be willing, if given the opportunity, to choose one or the other. They would choose no suffering regardless of the consequences because suffering is hard. And you know what, friends? Our Adventist health message helps to relieve suffering. Relieve suffering unnecessary suffering. So while others might be saying, you know, don't do this, or don't do that, or uh, take off the oil, or, you know, do something else, and we're just looking at obesity here. We can do this with many other diseases. What we would find is that there's a plethora of different voices. And these voices can tell us all kinds of things about what we should and what we shouldn't do based on their experiences. But I'll tell you, to a person on this list, I see not one of them who has included into his personal life the spiritual dimension in human health. And that is of concern to me. Do you know this man? He is a Russian entrepreneur, multimillionaire, who sponsored a conference a few weeks ago on immortality. He has already started to work on the technology of being immortal. Yes, he has an outline of the schedule of activities. They're going to imprint his brain and other people who would care to have that done to live in avatars that will not die. And the timetable is 2045. He has enlisted scientists, and other people around the world who are interested in this course of immortality. I am sure you don't know what this is. But this is a special kind of jellyfish that has genes in it that allow the jellyfish, when it gets old, to regress back into babyhood and re-establish itself again and grow to adulthood, and then regress. This is an immortal creature, as far as the scientists can tell. And what they're working on today is how to clone those genes. You know where I'm going. Maybe they'll put it in, well, I won't say. But the idea is immortal, and this man, he's at UC Riverside. He just received a grant, actually two grants, one of 2.4 million, another one of uh, of four million, to look at this issue of the spiritual dimension of passing from this life to immortality in another. He is studying this. And he has money to do it. This man is Ray Kurzweil. He believes, with all of the Google backing, because he was just hired by Google, he believes that by 2045, we would see a different world here, where people are living much, 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 much longer. And the machines are doing what machines today would not even dream of. But the machines in that time will be able to dream and to think and they will be powered by us. This is not science fiction. This is what people today are thinking. But I want to remind us all that apart from Christ, a healthy person is just a sinner with longevity. The question is,